Sorry. There we go. There we go. Looks like we're going. Oh my. So loud. We're looking at what it means to be a disciple. All right. All the awkwardness is going to vanish right now. Okay. We're back. The reality is this, guys. Okay. The message we're talking about, um, which, to be honest, every Sunday morning when we're opening God's Word, it's serious. Uh, but the content of this message is extremely serious. Because it really, in my mind, in my understanding of Scripture, determines the legitimacy of our salvation. Um, and so we're talking about being a disciple, right? And this whole concept of discipleship is of utmost importance. And it's of utmost importance because we should consider what Jesus told his disciples, right? What is one of the last things that he told them? He said, all power and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And because that's the case, Jesus said, now you go with my power and my authority and make disciples of all nations. He told them, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. Jesus was concerned that his people would be a people that walked in obedience by making more disciples. Months ago, we were, as a staff, as a pastoral staff, going through a discipleship study. We were examining a strategy, a specific kind of curriculum uh, on discipleship. And Steve Allen, who if you don't know the wise and mighty Steve Allen, you are missing out because he is a national treasure, our missions pastor. He is just one of the greatest men I have ever known. I love him to death. But he was leading us through this study every Tuesday. And we're just kind of talking about how we can most effectively making sh make sure we're, we're actually being a church that makes disciples. And Steve looked at all of us and he said, guys, if we do all this good stuff as a church, if we have lots of attenders at church, if we do lots of missions and all these things or, you know, like food pantries, all this stuff, and all this stuff that's good, but we miss out on making disciples then we've literally missed the one thing Jesus calls us to, the main thing. So this morning as we talk again about discipleship, I wanna tell you this first truth. And that is this, the path of discipleship begins with repentance. The path of discipleship will begin for you, if it hasn't already, the moment that you, uh, repentance is tied with faith in Jesus, but the moment that you repent of your sin. You see, the, the Bible has a lot to say about repentance, okay? Acts chapter two, right? If you recall, Peter, who him and the other disciples have witnessed Jesus ascend into heaven, and they are waiting for this promised Holy Spirit that Jesus said was going to come. They're there at the temple on the day of Pentecost, and Jesus, or not Jesus, Peter stands up, he has the Holy Spirit come upon him, and he begins to preach, he begins to proclaim the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. And because he does this, right, preaching is one of the modes through, with, through which God gets our attention. He moves in our hearts. So these men, these thousands of people, they're moved by his preaching. And it says that they respond to Peter by saying, what should we do? Y'all remember what Peter says to do to thousands of people? He says, repent and be baptized. Maybe you remember John the Baptist who came before Jesus, right, setting the way. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, it's near. The kingdom is almost here. And he said, and bear fruit in your life. May your life 
bear fruit or actions in accordance with repentance. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, he sends out his disciples as kind of like a mock trial. And he tells them, I want you to go into the surrounding cities and towns and begin telling them that I am here, that the Messiah has come. Preach the gospel. And so it says that his disciples went out and they proclaimed that everyone everywhere should repent. Last scripture I'll give you, and again, there's much more on repentance, but is Romans. The book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, don't you know? Don't you understand that God's kindness towards you, towards us in our sin, is meant to bring us to repentance? God is not kind and patient with us so that we can continue making the same stupid mistakes and errors. God's kindness is meant for us to repent. Repentance is foundational to the life of the disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have not understood repentance, you will not share the gospel properly. Because if you don't know what repentance is, you won't be able to tell someone else how they are to repent and receive the message of Jesus. If you haven't understood repentance, then whatever relationship you have with Jesus is, is a deception in your mind. You have missed the point. You have not quite grasped the reality of what happens in salvation. So repentance, repentance, repent. What does it mean? Because in church, we use a lot of terms, right? But we don't really have a definition for them. Let me give you three definitions of repentance, okay? Two are what I would say are my student ministry definitions. These are how I, I mean, I think they're good definitions for us as adults as well, but I think that they're simple. They make sense. And then one is, is a, a dictionary definition because we're in big church and you guys are smart. You guys are more intelligent than students, maybe. Um, but the first two definitions are like this. A change of mind that results in a change of action. To repent is to change your mind. And when we change our mind on something, it often results in certain things in our life also changing, certain ways we interact, right? Second definition, turning around and going the opposite direction. I like this one for students because I like to give them the illustration that I am walking in my sin. I'm walking in opposition towards God. I'm walking in pursuit of a goal of something that flows from within me. And God calls out to me and he says, repent, turn from that way of living and turn back to me. And so when I repent, I am saying, okay, I'm going to abandon my sin. I'm going to abandon my selfishness. I'm going to abandon the goals that I think are so clever and so wise. And I'm going to walk in the direction that God is leading and guiding me. It's doing a complete 180. But the, this Lexham Bible Dictionary defines repentance like this. And it's really not that complex. But just, just think about this. Repentance refers to an, an event in which an individual attains a divinely provided new understanding of their behavior and feels compelled to change that behavior and begin a new relationship with God. When God opens our eyes, when things click, when you finally understand the depth of your sin, repentance is responding and saying, I am in desperate need of you, God, and I am going to walk Towards you. I'm going to chase. I'm not even going to walk. I'm going to run. I'm going to sprint in the direction that you are in. 
that you can totally change me. You can change my mind. You can change my attitude. You can transform everything about me. We see this, this picture of repentance. This isn't our main text tonight, and you can go ahead. If you got your Bible, you can turn in, in to Luke chapter 18. Um, we'll get there in a moment. But I, I think of repentance like this and picture Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, that wee little man who was climbing up that tree to see Jesus? He was the tax collector. We'll see in our main text that tax collectors are despised, they're not liked, but he wanted to hear what Jesus was all about. He had heard and seen some of the things Jesus was doing, so he's looking for Jesus, and Jesus singles him out, comes over to him and says, get down from that tree, come on, I'm going to your house for dinner tonight. And so Zacchaeus, when encountering Jesus, he says to Jesus this, he says, look, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus had a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of attitude. He desired to right his wrongs after encountering Jesus. That, in essence, is repentance. One more passage. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. Leads to salvation, he says. What that means is when we feel convicted of our sin, this is a, a godly moving us of, uh, to have an awareness or an understanding of, of just what our sin is. Rebellion against God, self-destruction. And when we understand that, when it's, when it's a godly brokenness, when it's a godly sorrow, not just a, oh man, I did it again, oh, I'm the worst, and you have a little pity party and then you're like, but I'm gonna do it again, right? That is not godly sorrow that leads to salvation and repentance. When you're broken, you're devastated because of what you've done. And you say, God, I don't want that anymore, it's filth, it's, it's yucky, it's disgusting, take it, free me. That's godly sorrow that leads to life, that leads to freedom. But before we go to the passage, I know this is taking a second, but bear with me. I need to define these things because we need to know what repentance is not. Because I tell you, I'm passionate about repentance because over half my life, I did not understand repentance. I had it wrong. Here's what repentance is not. Repentance is not an insincere apology for the sake of minimizing a consequence, okay? Repentance is not saying half-heartedly, I'm sorry, because I don't want X, Y, Z consequence. I don't want the punishment, okay? So, so I think of my daughter, right, Anna Joy, right? Four years old, she's gonna be five in December. Sweetest little girl, I love her to death. I mean, I love her so much, she's so sweet, so cute, but she's a little rebel sinner, right? She is, is guilty over and over every day of doing something rebellious. She will hear from me and her mother clear, direct, orders or commands, do not do this, and she will go and disobey directly. Like, she'll go and she'll hit her sister, right? Or she will go into the pantry when we've told her, do not go in the pantry and get cookies or gummies, and she'll sneak in and climb on everything and get those things when we've said, do not. So what do I do as a good father who loves her, right? I go up to her and I say, come here, let me explain to you what daddy's about to do. I'm gonna spank you. I'm gonna give you a punishment because you know better. You have walked in direct disobedience to me, not because I'm angry, but because I want her to learn to do what is good, what is right. 
So when I say I'm going to spank you, what does she do? She starts whining and crying. No, no, please don't, Daddy. I love you. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, is it sincere? Is she, is she, do you think that little Anna Joy understands that it breaks my heart and my wife's heart when she just, she just completely rebels and disobeys us? And I know it's a silly illustration, but doesn't it hurt when our kids disobey? When we're trying to give them commands that are just for the sake of, of them, right? She doesn't understand what she, the pain she's caused us. What she'll even do is she'll say, Daddy, how about a, a tiny spanking? Can it be a little spanking? Because if you have a, a girl, you know, it's like, it's hard. It's difficult to spank your daughters, like, really hard. But she understands, right? She, she, she understands, I'm just doing this because I don't like the consequence. I don't want the punishment. So is that you, right? I mean, do you do that? Because I, I do that too, right? We all will be guilty of doing something wrong. And here's what you and I do as grown, mature adults. We will go up to people and we will say, listen, I'm sorry, but right? Don't we do that? We give the but because what are we trying to do? We're ultimately inwardly in our hearts. We're justifying why we've done what we've done or what we've done. Like it's really not that bad to us. We don't understand the the grandeur of, of the situation, right? And so we're guilty of that. But we have these two types of repentance. The one that's the false view, the one that's wrong, insincere, desire to get out of consequences, the change of mind. This, this whole, your, your being is transformed because you're entering into a new relationship with God. Which one of those two has been your uh, common experience as a Christian? What have you experienced when I say the word repentance out of those two, right? And that's where maybe some of you are a little concerned if you're wise, if you're honest with yourselves because you think, I have never truly repented. Well, let's dive into the text, Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. Uh, I believe this text doesn't show us um, the transformation necessarily, but it shows us, A, the heart, the sort of attitude, and what goes on in, in the mind of a person who is truly repenting. And I, I, it shows us also spiritually what happens when a person repents, okay? And I'm gonna pause briefly and explain some things as we go, so, so bear with me. Verse uh, nine, it says, Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. He says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. Now, real quick context, okay? If you've been in church for some time, you've probably heard the tax collector thing, why they were hated, but let me just remind you, right? Here's what you have. You have the Jews and the Romans. The Romans came in and conquered the Jews. They just completely destroyed them and took them over. Like, they, the Jews didn't stand a chance. So Rome was, was not just a, a nice, benevolent conqueror. They were an aggressive empire. So what they would do when they would conquer a people, they did this with the Jews. They, they crucified several Jews up and down the highways as sort of like, hey, we're in charge now. Do not rebel. Like, we're the guys, okay? After that, you can imagine how much hate that would probably produce in the Jews towards the Romans, right? You're thinking, you come in, you took us over, and then you're like killing our people. You're trying to scare us. Like, we don't like the Romans. But then the Romans, in addition to doing all that stuff, would say, we're gonna tax you for, for protection. You gotta pay us so that we'll protect you. And you're like, from who? You're the, you're the bad guys. You're the ones that we need protection from, okay? 
But regardless, they had to pay taxes, okay? And the Romans understood, they were kind of smart. They realized that if, if a Roman guard was going and collecting these taxes all the time, it, there's, more, there's prone to be more conflict or tension, right? Because the Jews are so hostile towards the Romans. So they would take some Jews who were compliant and say, you are going to be our tax collectors. You are going to get the money from your own people, all right? In addition to that, these tax collectors were not, they didn't have like a set limit that they were allowed to get. They were allowed to get as much as they want. So say from each person, Rome was like, hey, get $10 for us from everybody. All right, after that, you can do whatever. So I, as a tax collector, who's a little scummy, a little selfish and greedy, I would say, all right, give me 20 bucks, okay? And I'm gonna take 10 of those dollars for myself, give the other 10 to Rome, right? So you see what's happening with tax collectors. They're sort of like, partnering with Rome, the enemy, and then they're stealing from their brothers and sisters, their own people, and we all just don't like being taxed already, so it's just a horrible situation, right? Like, it's no good, and they're extremely despised and hated. They're greedy, I mean, kind of rightfully so. Then you got the Pharisee, and the Pharisee's the opposite, right? The Pharisee is the one who, who has it all together. He's like the big CEO businessman that like everybody likes. He does the right things. You, you guys get the picture of the religious Pharisee, okay? Good guy, bad guy. It says, the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. His prayer's over, all selfish. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Do you see that contrast? The reality is this, Jesus isn't telling a story about one righteous guy and one unrighteous guy. He's telling a story about two people equally unrighteous before God, but one of them gets it. One of them understands his current standing before God. Therefore, he doesn't lift his face. He realizes that, that his only hope is God's mercy. But the danger for us, especially those of us in this room that have been coming to church our whole lives, right, is that really Jesus is, this is what he taught. Religion has this way of sort of veiling our intentions and like covering up the reality of our sinful nature in our hearts, okay? So the Pharisee, was just as sinful, just as selfish, probably just as greedy as this tax collector who's taken all these people's money, right? But the fact of the matter is, the Pharisee covered up all that selfishness with his own works, saying, I fast X amount, I give this, I'm coming to the temple to pray consistently, I do these things, therefore I am justified, I am good. I don't have anything to worry about. I'm a good dude. But Jesus always taught, he always like a sword, it's like he stabs us right in the heart and he says, no, you are just as evil as this guy over here. And, and I, I think we need to hear that really quick and just take a second and think because I know growing up, when I was in my most rebellious, far from, from God, I was doing things that made me just point blank, you know, rebellious and a sinner. Like I was doing the drugs, I was trying to go to the parties, I was like, I had all that, that bad stuff that we all know is sinful. But what I also had was I had hypocrisy like the Pharisee. Because even in that state, young Matt would look at other people and say, well, I, I go to church, I've, I've prayed the prayer. I mean, I still know I'm saved. Jesus is gonna forgive me. 
And I would look at other people and I'd be like, they really don't get it. You know what I mean? I was a hypocrite. My, my little bit of religion that I had was able to completely veil the reality of just how sinful and corrupt my heart was. We need to, to sit here and, and think, understand, if your religion or your actions ever, ever veil or convince you that your heart is not utterly devious and wicked and rebellious towards God, then your religion might be coming this idol in your life that is actually pulling you farther away from God. What this produces in you and I is, we'll do this, right? We'll look at ourselves and we'll take the best things that we do and then we'll look at somebody else who is doing the worst that they've ever done and we're comparing those two things, right? Take our best and other people's worst and we say, I am awesome. Right? We start to really pat ourselves on the back and build ourselves up and think that we're great. But the reality is, I mean, we all see when I'm saying that up here, just how bogus that is, just how stupid, how much of a jerk that is. But we do it all the time. We think, look, how did that person get there? I, certainly, if I ever was in the same situation they would, I would have, I would have not made those same mistakes, right? I would have done better and, and I wouldn't have got there. I can't believe that they're, they're down in that position doing that thing. The reality is our religion can become a veil between us and God, but, but Jesus closes with a very powerful statement about these two guys, okay? He closes and he says, I tell you this, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This word justified is so amazing when you consider, right? What did I just tell you about the tax collector? All the things that he's guilty of. And that word justified means your debt has been paid. It means that if I owe a mortgage and I go and pay it in full, then the person would say your debt has been justified. You owe me no more. And this Pharisee, understood his only hope was God's mercy upon his life. And Jesus said, because he threw himself at the feet of God, at the mercy of God, Jesus says he's justified. His debt had been forgiven. It's been paid. Do you get that that's the gospel? Do you get how beautiful and amazing that is for you and I who would understand it? that you and I have a laundry list just as long as this tax collector of sins. And yet, Jesus Christ came in and he took the punishment, the wrath for our sins, being a substitute in our place. That if we would throw ourselves at his mercy and his grace, we would be completely and finally justified. I don't have to do anything else to justify myself except throw myself at the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. I like to explain it like this. It's like Jesus is standing in front of me as a blast door. The wrath of God comes upon me and it should completely destroy me, overcome me. Yet Jesus is taking all of that force, all of that anger towards sin, all of that justice upon himself so that I can stand there confidently and free. We're justified through the mercy and grace of God. But we will never be justified when 
Like the Pharisee, we try to justify ourselves based on our own works, based on our own actions, okay? So if this is repentance, right, hopefully you understand. Hopefully you're, you're here, and I know that someone here, this is meant for you. You're thinking, I'm, I hear you, but I've never repented. So Matt, why do people never repent? Why have I never repented? Well, here's the reason, all right? If you have never experienced this true repentance like I'm talking about, you lack understanding in one of three places, okay? So I'm gonna try to give you guys understanding so that we can all collectively, let me give you one quote. Martin Luther said this, all of the Christian life is repentance, all of it. This isn't just for the non-believer in here. This is for both the non-believer and the believer that we continue in this state of repentance, humble surrender and turning from sin. But you have missed one of three things. One, you have not understood the magnitude of God's holiness and his perfect nature. See, God requires complete justice for sin. In the same way that you and I would not be comfortable, we would be enraged if there was a judge who continued to let off murderer after murderer without paying any, any bit for their crimes, right? We would be frustrated. We, we, we would be angered. In the same way, God, who is a just and holy and perfect God, requires complete justice for sinful creatures who rebel against him. He must punish our sin if he is going to maintain his nature. For him to not would completely change everything we know about God. Do you understand that God is holy? That he's perfect? That he's distinct? He is separate from you and I? The second thing, you have not understood the gravity of just how sinful you are. When we don't understand these two things, we don't repent. We repent with that false sense of apology, praying the prayer, saying, God, forgive me, but I'm gonna do it again. The passage I love that, I, that God used to open my eyes, remember that definition of repentance where it, you sort of get this picture like God has to remove the veil so that we can, it'll click? That happened to me when I was listening to someone preach on, on Isaiah chapter six. When Isaiah is transported into the throne room of God, he, as a man, is now in the presence of the ancient of days, almighty God, the creator who is distinct from all of creation. And it says this in Isaiah, that there's these, these angelic beings, these seraphim that are flying around the throne of God. And you remember what they cry out? They cry out day and night. Their purpose is to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. They acknowledge his holiness, his authority, his beauty. And remember what Isaiah says about when they're doing this? He says it's so powerful. These beings are so powerful in their voice that like, it's like the temple is shaking, like there's an earthquake. And so Isaiah's response is what? He says, I am doomed. I'm dead. I'm done for. I am, why am I done for? Because I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinful man of sinful people. I cannot be here in the presence of God. Yet God in his mercy takes the coal and touches his lips and says, you're gonna be my, my prophet to my people. God uses the sinful man, Isaiah. It's the mercy of God, but Isaiah had perspective, right? That's what it is. 
okay? The third one I'll quickly say is that we don't understand the mercy of God. Then I wanna tell you about perspective because that's what this is all about, all right? Maybe you haven't understood the mercy of God. So you get that God's holy, you get that you're a sinner, but you then, your conclusion is not, okay, I'm gonna trust God alone to be the one who can save me through his mercy and grace. Rather, you say, I am too far gone, I've done too much, therefore God would want nothing to do with me. Which in that, you are minimizing the reality of what Jesus has accomplished, his whole purpose, his whole mission is to bring us into right relationship with God. And I would go back to Acts, when Peter is preaching, he says, you know, repent and be baptized, and he's preaching again in chapter three, and he says, repent that your sins may be blotted out. When we throw ourselves at the mercies of God, when Christ saves us and redeems us, God wipes the slate clean. He doesn't bring, like sometimes we do this to people that we're in relationship with, we remind them of what they've done that we didn't like. And God says, I am going to completely wipe away all of your sin, all of your rebellion, and completely make you a new creature in my presence. I'm gonna blot out your sin. So if that's you, you don't understand the mercy of God, understand that God's mercy is purpose. He desired to bring you into this place, but you need to surrender. So two things real quick, and then we'll get to the close, okay? And that's this, it's perspective, okay? Just to lighten the mood, a little silly, right? I started doing jujitsu, so I'm a lethal weapon right now, you know? All right? And what I learned in jujitsu is this, okay? You start out as a white belt, I'm going for like a month, and I'm thinking, I'm going against other white belts, guys that are like blue belts, which is one, one above. They've been going maybe like a little bit longer than me. And I'm keeping up, and I'm like beating some of these guys. I'm thinking, dude, I'm a natural. I'm pretty good at jujitsu. Like, like before long, I'm gonna be eat like amazing, okay? I'm thinking I'm really good, but then you know what happened? My perspective shifted. The reason it shifted is because I started to go against some of these guys that were purple belts, brown belts, black belts. They've been doing it for seven, 10, 15 years. And, and I'm like trying to wrestle these guys and trying to do like the arm bars and stuff. And like, I can't do anything. They're just like, they could kill me at any moment. It's, it's insane. My perspective is shifted, right? And no longer do I have this, this false sense of confidence that, oh, I'm something greater than I am. Instead, I realize the reality that I've got a long way to go. And the same is true of repentance, right? If you do not understand the realities of your sin, the realities of who God is, then you will never understand and live in the reality of true, authentic repentance as we defined it at the beginning. You must get the picture. And one more verse, and I love saying this. I love, this, this just always comes into my mind when I'm preaching to students. Jesus said, anyone who sins is a, anybody remember? A a slave to sin, come on guys, you guys knew that, all right? Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, I know some things are harder to understand in scripture than others, but that's pretty self-explanatory. What Jesus means by that is you are not as in control as you think you are. Really, you've got this sin nature that when you have sinned, that sin now has sort of gripped you and, and chained you. It, it's got you like, like your master. It's pulling you around, it's guiding your decision. It's the thing that's in charge. And so Jesus came and he said, I've come to set the captives free. I've come to, so that you may experience true freedom. If you would cast yourself on my work, 
Trust me, follow me, I will set you free from that bondage to sin and all the shame that it brings. But we don't have right perspective. We've been deceived, we've been tricked into thinking that we are more in control than we are of ourselves. And we can quit whenever we want. We can make the decision to turn whenever we want. But I'm telling you right now, if God is opening a door for you to respond in true, sincere repentance this morning, then do not leave this place without coming to the altar and saying, God, I need you. The only thing that will save me is your mercy through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you have right perspective? I'll close with this, okay? So Jesus is making the point. True righteousness, that is my ability now to be in right standing with God, okay? So instead of going to God as a guilty sinner through Christ, righteousness, I get to go to God as son, as daughter. We get to be confident in the presence of God now. That's righteousness. True righteousness comes from God's mercy bestowing it upon you, from God giving you this righteousness. It doesn't come from your ability to earn it. So back to definitions. We could, I think, define repentance in this simple way. As humbly, I've said it already over and over, throwing ourselves at the mercies of God. Remember what John the Baptist said in terms of Jesus? He said, I must become less and he must become greater. And so this morning, I call out to not just those of you who are far from God. I do first to you that if you've never experienced this repentance I've been talking about all morning, I tell you, come and repent. Look at how the tax collector treated his interaction with God. And in the same way, your only hope for salvation, your only hope for forgiveness, your only hope for right relationship with the almighty creator of all things is to humbly lower your head, make your posture low and say, God, I need you to save me. You alone, Jesus can save me from God's wrath. And if you're a believer in this place, I too, again, call out to you that as David comes up and we close in worship, to repent. Because that quote, I said it very quickly, but all of the Christian life is repentance. And I don't wanna be preaching for too long, but this doesn't mean that we have to live in this state of like brokenness all the time. Because again, Jesus sets us free. We get to enjoy that right relationship with him. We get to walk in confidence as sons and daughters of the almighty God. Yet I know that as a sincere, authentic believer and follower of Jesus, I still fall short. I will speak to students in a way that I know I shouldn't speak them because my anger gets the better of me or I will treat my wife in a way I know she doesn't deserve and that is from a place of flesh and sin. And in those moments, you know what I do? I, I must go to God and I must say, Lord, would you completely wipe that away? Would you help me to again embrace the mercies that you bestow upon me through Jesus Christ? Would you take that sin from me that I may walk in your righteousness that you bring? So if you have been a Christian but you've only repented one time, Probably got a lot to repent for, I'll tell you that. But let us this morning stand up, sing to the Lord, pray to the Lord, 
with a unified heart of repentance, saying, God, come into our lives, use us, change us, help our minds to be in line with you. Will you stand as we pray? Father God, you alone are capable of transforming us. God, no program, no systems are going to change us enough to to make us right before you. So Father, this morning, would you be moving through our hearts? Would you just press on us, compel us to respond in sincere and authentic repentance that we may come to you as our provider, as our priest, as our protector, as our savior. Lord, would you save the one here that is far from you? Would you open their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel? And would you help us to, as a church collectively, your people, be transformed and live in such a way that impacts this world for your glory.